This week on Cold Steel. We wouldn't think in America of letting anybody but a board-certified general surgeon take out an appendix. But that wasn't the way it was in the 1950s, and it's not the way it is in these remote places in Canada. And I think that our standards should be just really looked at, you know, what do we really need someone to be skilled in to be able to do that job. Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Mark Campbell is a practicing general surgeon in Texas and a retired NASA flight surgeon. He has been researching space medicine for over two decades. In this episode, we talk to him about prophylactic surgery for astronauts, what it would take to develop remote surgical space capacity, and telemetered ultrasound. Dr. Campbell, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We wanted to start out by asking you, what drove you into getting into space medicine? It is kind of, I think, an interesting story. I was uh you know brought up like a lot of kids with the with the American space program and I was uh 14 when the uh, uh Apollo 11 landed and was very interested in uh, in space uh, but you know really didn't think that there was any uh, realistic way that I could be involved as an as a you know an adult um and so uh I, you know, my interest turned to medicine and I became a general surgeon. Uh, and then in about 1987, I went to a meeting uh, and the speaker uh, was uh, Norm Thackard, who was an MD astronaut. And he gave a talk on space medicine. And I didn't know there was even such a thing as space medicine. I was very ignorant about about space medicine and space physiology, but I got very excited about that, and he encouraged me uh, to become involved in space medicine, and so, you know, that's when I joined the Aerospace Medical Association, the space medicine uh, branch, and, uh, you know, started reading the literature and uh, uh, just getting, uh, you know, smart on space medicine, and uh, then, and, and I really started thinking a lot about, you know, how would you do surgery in space? You know, every time I did uh, anything, I, I really kind of put the application of how would I do this, you know, in space. So I just started thinking about it a whole lot, and I I came up with some ideas on some projects, and, and to me the big issues were uh, bleeding in space and how to restrain the patient and the mm-hmm. uh, surgeon and the instruments. And so I presented my ideas to uh, Roger Billica, who at the time was the director of the Health Maintenance Facility Project for Space Station Freedom. And uh, so he was a very good mentor to me and allowed me to do uh, uh, start doing some projects. And uh, I had really no funding for these projects, 
So I kind of had to give it my own time and my own money, but uh, I, I went forward with it. And uh, we did some, uh, uh, initially, some small animal studies and then some larger animal studies in parabolic flight. And really looking at those questions, you know, bleeding in space and how to restrain, how to restrain uh, uh, everybody for a surgical procedure. And then also, you know, some other things that we got into, like laparoscopy and thoroscopy and things like that. And so uh, I did a lot of this consultant re- parabolic research. And uh, because I had uh, I'd gone to Russia for about three weeks in 1990, and I'd taken Russian in college, so I did have some some Russian uh, abilities. And in 1994, when we uh, signed the U.S.-Russian uh, Space Cooperative uh, Pact, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, uh, NASA needed anybody who knew anything about Russia. Or, or the Russian language, and there just weren't that many people out there. So uh, I found kind of find a niche for myself, and with Roger's help, I was able to become a, 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 a get into flight operations, become a NASA flight surgeon, and was deployed to Russia. And the first time I was deployed to Russia, in fact, the very first day, it was to be sort of the backup flight surgeon to Norm Packard, mm-hmm. who was the person who gave the talk in 1987. So in 1994, I went over to uh, Star City and supported his uh, launch and uh, and got to, to meet him again for the first time since 1987, but uh, kind of wow. came around full swing. Wow. So that's kind of how I got involved. It's kind of a, a weird thing. Well, that's so, so interesting. Um, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of, of parabolic flight with you and, of course, our, our partner here, Andy Kirkpatrick, and you go go way back. You know, I, I was curious if, if for our listeners you could describe what that experience is like in, in zero gravity in any of the planes, you know, really that, that you've been in or that we continue mm-hmm. to use. And, and just to, to give us a sense or give the collective a sense of, of, of how that feels and how you set up for it and what your thoughts are. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and I, I did about 40 or 50 parabolic missions, but uh, the the main thing is it is a very artificial environment. You just have this maybe 30-second window of weightlessness followed then by a, a 2G pullout. And so you have to to realize that, uh, uh, you know, you do have some limitations. And then if you're using a, a, a artificial model like a mannequin, then there's, there's another uh, artificial variable uh, added to that as well. Uh, I think that using a, a real animal model makes a huge difference. Just about everything that we predicted that would happen in weightlessness, when we got up there, it didn't happen the way we thought it would. And at first, uh, our first uh, reaction was that we set the experiment up wrong. We, We weren't able to show what we wanted to show, so it was our fault. The way we accept the experiment was flawed. But then with a, a little more knowledge and experience, we realize that that our hypothesis of how things work in weightlessness was absolutely wrong. And uh, we could never have found that out without using an animal model. So I think that was very important to use an animal model. Um, you have to really tightly script everything for parabolic flight and say, in, in this parabola, we're going to do such and such. And during the 2G pullout, we're going to reconfigure. And then we're going to demonstrate, you know, another 
another uh, uh, aspect, and then we're going to reconfigure. And you have to have it very tightly scripted and very well practiced uh, in your mind uh, what you're going to do. Because when you get up in parabolic flight, things happen very fast. And the more prepared you are, uh, the more likely you'll have success with your project. And uh, and we had some very successful projects, but we really, really prepared. We did ground simulations, and and uh, and we did a lot of uh, just script writing uh, to prepare for those parabolic flights. And I think that's what made it successful. Um, you know, we we thought that bleeding would be a problem in weightlessness, and it wasn't because of you the surface tension forces, which we had no idea how predominant they would be are really very predominant and keep you from having a problem with fluids. And then we thought restraint would be very, very difficult. And we had a lot of really elaborate ways to restrain ourselves and the and the animal and all of our instruments. We found out it's really a lot more simple, uh, especially if we planned for it and had a method. It was a lot more simple than we thought it would be. Uh, and then, you know, lap, laparoscopy, we thought we would not... Uh, have very good visualization when we did laparoscopy, and it turns out that we had very good visualization, but for for reasons we couldn't have predicted, and that is that that the mesentery uh, pulls all the bowel uh, out of the pelvis and it allows you to uh, to be able to visualize things. We also found that uh, fluid in the chest acts completely different than than we would have expected. It doesn't layer out at all, and and uh, it kind of uh, sticks to every surface that it can, and so it doesn't loculize. Uh, it, it just kind of becomes very diffuse. And so all these things were kind of unpredicted, and we had to learn them by going into parabolic flight. Dr. Campbell, listening to you talk about this, it's clear that none of the things that you, like a layperson or, or anybody, uh, any average surgeon thinking about doing surgery in space would have ever really predicted. Um how do you can you uh, to walk us through how the sort of the concept of doing surgery in space has developed over time um, and where we sort of sit in terms of being able to do surgery in space now given all the work that you have uh, have done on this and and then maybe uh, touch a bit about where, where you think surgery in space uh, is going in the future yeah well I would uh, I would uh Put it. Let, let's let's talk about the different environments a little bit. Now, the International Space Station uh, has you know like a twenty four hour time to definitive medical care back on Earth, and so all the medical care system is really oriented towards uh, stabilization and transport, as it should be. So there's very little surgical capability among the crew medical officers or even the equipment. Now, the two criticisms I have about the International Space Station medical system is, one, they'd have no provision for putting in a chest tube. And uh, and I really think that that's something that, that can be easily trained and easily provided for from an equipment standpoint and, and would be life-saving if you ever needed it. And then the other thing is there's no organized way to perform even a simple surgical procedure like a laceration closure, all the surgical instruments are individually wrapped. And so you don't have a surgical kit or a, a method to take all those surgical instruments 
even a simple way and restrain them so that they're organized and can remain sterile and can remain remain uh, not only restrained but accessible. And it'd be real simple to have just a minor surgical kit that, and, and we did this in parabolic flight quite a bit, that you can just take out and has Velcro on the back and you can stick it to a wall and it, it keeps your uh, instruments organized and sterile and and it's, it really makes the, the a minor surgical procedure, like say laceration closure, a lot, lot more simple. And uh, so I think that was one thing that they should have uh, had on the International Space Station. And I never could get them to accept it. Uh, I think it would be very interesting if we go back to a moon landing, because the uh, you know we have about 200 pounds of medical equipment on the International Space Station. We even have an ultrasound. Uh, but when we go to landing on the moon, our medical equipment is going to be very, very, very small. Uh, I think we'd be lucky if we get uh, if we get 20 pounds of medical equipment. And so, when you're on the moon, you're obviously in a much more remote place than the International Space Station, and your time back to definitive medical care on the Earth is going to be quite long, probably three or four days. So I think we're kind of going to, by necessity, box ourselves into a corner uh, when we go to a moon landing. A lot less capability and a lot more risk because uh, our time back to Earth will be longer. So uh, I think it will be very interesting. Our risk will definitely be higher there. When you talk about going to Mars, and we've been talking about this for 30 years, you know, like about every five years, we have some someone comes up with some sort of conference about surgical care on a long duration mission, and uh, and I go to every single one of these. I've been to about six or seven of them now, and and everybody who is in attendance always feels like, well, this is just a really new thing. No one's ever talked about this before, but we do it about every five years. But we always talk about the same issues, but. The, the knowledge base and the dialogue and the conversation is much more sophisticated every time we meet. And uh, I think that uh, one thing that becomes clear to me is that we don't need something real sophisticated and elaborate like robotic surgery or even laparoscopic surgery on a long-duration missions such as a Mars mission. What we need, though, is to have somebody who is uh, surgically capable uh, to be able to perform a variety of fairly simple surgical procedures. Uh, I think that the paradigm to me is uh, the general practitioner of the 1950s because that general practitioner had very minimal surgical training, but he was able to do appendectomies, they did hernia repairs, they took out gallbladders, they did all kinds of stuff. And, and that's kind of what I think the crew medical officer on a Mars mission will need to be. He needs to be a general practitioner with some surgical training to perform some fairly simple minor procedures. Um, and I think a big part of that a big part of that medical care system is going to be percutaneous things, uh, drainage, stenting, um, things like that. And so I think ultrasound-directed percutaneous 
procedures are going to be a real big part of that. But I don't think you need a lot of sophisticated elaborate equipment. I think you need a, a knife, a hemostat, some scissors, some suture. I think you can do everything with a fairly minimal set of equipment. Uh, I think it's also 3D printing is very exciting and uh, that you can just actually print your surgical instruments as you need them. Although people get excited about 3D printing, I like to point out to them the 3D printing now is still very low resolution, and so you get very crude, uh, imprecise instruments that are that are not. I would not consider them good enough quality to perform surgery with. They're more like the the plastic uh, suture removal sets that you get up on the floor that they that they buy from the lowest bidder. You know, you can barely take out a suture with them. They're so crude. And and it's kind of that kind of quality, but I think it's obvious that the quality is going to get uh, better over uh, the next few years. We'll get higher resolution uh, uh, instruments out of 3D printing, and they'll be they'll have material that's much uh, you know more hard instead of soft like they have now. So I think it'll get better, and I think it'll be a, a big adjunct. There's just degrees of of remoteness when we're thinking about concepts like space, but but I think that this applies even down on Earth as well too, and so I'm I'm curious how it, one how you envision um, the operating room to look in space, uh, or or if you do envision a, a scenario like that, and then the second part of that is I, I'm curious how, about what you think um, we we could do to apply that. Uh, type of thinking in remote uh, locations in uh, on Earth. Well, you know, we we've looked at remote medical care on Earth as an analog to a long duration space flight. And the the two things we've been most interested in is the Antarctic experience and the uh, U.S. Navy submarine experience. You know, when a when a U.S. Navy submarine uh, those boomers go up underneath the Arctic. Ice, and that's where they sit, uh, you know, in case they're needed. And they are three weeks away from definitive medical care. It takes them three weeks to get out of that ice pack and and get to a position where a helicopter could do a medical evacuation. So they're fairly remote, and uh, they they take care of a lot of things with just a independent duty corpsman. Um, they've been treating uh, appendicitis non-optically for a long time and uh, we wrote our article back in uh, I think it was 2004 uh, about the non-operative treatment for appendicitis it was really a new idea no one had really talked about that before uh, but the U.S. Navy had been doing it since World War II since that time you know uh, the non-operative treatment appendicitis tons have been written about it and, and everybody's gotten real involved with it in the last five years um, and and so we have a lot more experience with it, uh, but it, it definitely is is uh, especially if you think about uh, being on a uh, a space mission. Uh, if someone develops appendicitis, we're going to diagnose it very very early. It won't be somebody that's been sitting out there for several days, you know, like we we often see on Earth. We'll diagnose it very early, and we'll have fairly early intervention as far as you know IV antibiotics, and and our success rate should be very high, should be ninety five percent, something like that. Um, 
I still think we need to have the surgical capability to do an appendectomy just simply because we need the surgical capability to do a lot of things, not just uh, uh, appendicitis actually has a fairly low incidence in the astronaut population, but we need to be able to do a whole lot of uh, other things. And I think if you can just take someone and give them six months of very focused surgical training, I think they can do everything that uh, that we need to be that needs to be done from the surgical standpoint on a long duration mission. Uh, we looked at Antarctica too, and, and they have a lot of success with you know dealing with appendicitis non-operatively. Um, and uh, and so I think those things serve as analogs. Um, for long duration space mission uh, and and they've given us a lot more confidence in what we will actually see and and how we can take care of it and I think it makes us feel like that we can take care of things a lot easier than we think you know dr Campbell you, you mentioned your journal of American College of Surgeons paper from two thousand and four and that's a on our must read list for all the all the interns and junior residents that come into the program here it's it's a it's a superb and really out of the box uh, uh, reviews. I encourage all of our listeners to to check that out. I, I just want to swing back to the training a little bit, and um, you know, although there's not many countries in the world that that still do this, Canada is one of them. Or at least some of our provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Quebec in particular, have programs that take quite remote general practitioners. Uh, in a real rural setting and tr- and are able to train them for six to twelve months for some of these basic surgical um, I- you know interventions, including percutaneous drainage, including uh, remote telemetered ultrasound like you and Scott Lachowski and others that have proven so effective and you know they end up in in places not even whitehorse but much more remote to that, and they provide really impressive levels of care with quite often significant autonomy and you know whenever I see that and, and one of those folks comes through I always do think that probably you're right I mean it's probably the model for the longer duration space flight whether that's you know to the moon or maybe even Mars one day for sure right I, I certainly don't think you need a board certified surgeon or even someone who's been through a surgical residency to be your crew medical officer you need someone who is um, can take care of a, a lot of different medical situations, and and I really think that uh, uh, Canada it would be a great analog for uh, deep space missions because it's that kind of physician that we need, someone who can um, you know monitor you know psychiatric well-being, be able to take care of medical situations to make medical diagnoses and then if there if you need to do something real simple surgically like drain an abscess or even take out an appendix uh you don't have to have a lot of surgical training or surgical skills to be able to do that we think we do nowadays mm-hmm. because we're just used to we wouldn't think in america of letting anybody but a board certified general surgeon take out an appendix but that wasn't the way it was in the 1950s and it's not the way it is in these remote places in Canada, and, and I, I think that uh, our, our standards uh, should be just really looked at, you know, what do we really need someone to be skilled in to be able to do that job? Mm-hmm. No, for sure. I completely agree with you. You know, the, another interesting topic is the, the concept of risk mitigation 
you know, and where surgical rescue plays into that and where palliation plays into that as well. It's always a bit of a sensitive topic, but, you know, from an outsider's observation, NASA and the Canadian Space Agency and other other groups have, have uh, been a bit of a pendulum back and forth, depending on the particular mission and goals, for sure, and probably appropriately so. You know, I think back to the crew return vehicle or crew rescue vehicle, the CRV that, that NASA shelved in addition to some other, other things. How does that conversation usually happen with regard to, you know, again, mitigation of risk versus therapy versus palliation? Well, for one thing, I think that for any, every mission is different and you, you need to know what capabilities you need to have for each mission. It has to do with mission duration and also time to definitive medical care back to Earth. Um, and also has to do with what is your level of crew medical officer training? I mean, for the International Space Station, they get something like 40 hours of training. It's not very much at all. Mm-hmm. And also, what kind of equipment do you have? And so you, you, you shouldn't expect someone to do to, to be able to treat a surgical um, disease if they don't have the training or the equipment. And I've always said also, you shouldn't put equipment up there if the crew medical officer isn't trained to use it, because then that puts him in a in a an awful spot. Uh, so beforehand, you know, if you take let's say a a lunar landing mission, I think you have to to draw up and and have a dialogue about what are your capabilities, what can you do, and what can you not do, and that way when that when that happens, you can you can say you know we don't have the capability to do this. We don't have the equipment. We don't have the crew medical officer training. It's just not something we're capable of, and so we're not going to attempt to do it. You know, we'll we'll mitigate it as best we can, but we're not going to be able to to take care of it. Um, and 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 to make sure that that you have a capabilities and a no capabilities list that that's been well thought out for each each mission for each situation. Yeah, no, that's that's very well said. Um, you know, back going way back, you know, to the yeah. old days when I first started consulting for Space Station Freedom, one of the things that that they had on their capability list for Space Station Freedom. Now you had to realize Freedom was going to be uh, up there with no ability to return somebody on a medical evacuation for 45 days. So they had a 45-day definitive medical care time. There was no shuttle, no assured crew return vehicle. You were just stuck on the on the space station for 45 days without a shuttle. And so they had a lot of capabilities. And one of the capabilities they had was if someone developed a uh, a uh, uh, head injury, of being able to drill a burr hole and drain a subdural hematoma. And I thought that was ludicrous. And and uh, that was the first thing I threw out. I said, you know, you get rid of the drill for the burr hole. You know, we're not going to drill a burr hole on the space station Freedom. And and they had all sorts of things like that. That that uh, uh, with a little bit of thought, it was pretty easy to to change that capability, no capability list. Well, it's, it's such an important point, right? And it's, it's something that we forget sometimes, you know, d- down on Earth. It's sort of like opening the chest in the emergency department. Maybe as an emerge doc, you, you kind of have one or two moves. And after that, what do you do? So yeah. you know, there's a hole in the head. And then what do you do? Uh, it's, it's still an issue. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit uh, about 
some of the um, uh, remote telementoring um, that you've been involved with, and of course our partner here, Andy Kirkpatrick, as a Canadian lead, and then Scott Tochowski as well. It's it's remarkable um, how transferable that skill and that that um, that communication can be from you know untrained person to untrained person, and really what they can get done. I think I think the biggest thing that we do not know about that we don't have experience at is doing um, remote telementoring, and I think we need to try to get more experience of that. and And I think that's a very um, low budget thing that can be done. Mm-hmm. And I wish that people would get more interested in it. You know, you put somebody. Uh, doesn't have to be a hundred miles away. He could be in the next room as long as your uh, communication back and forth is as if you were on a long duration mission. In other words, you have a time delay of let's say five minutes or even 10 minutes or, or, or a fairly significant time delay. And you try to, to talk somebody through uh, someone who does have some very minimal, but basic surgical skills but it's not a surgeon and you have someone who is a surgeon try to talk them through something like say an appendectomy or drain an abscess or, or just some simple uh, surgical problem. But with that time delay and, and with someone who really truly has very minimal training. And uh, I think we need to get a lot more experience of that. Um, And, and I think it has a real world uh, application, just as you say, in remote places in Canada to do some surgical telementoring in uh, in remote places in Canada. Um, but, and of course, it has even more application with uh, with a future long-duration um, uh, space flight. Um, but it seems to me like that would be a fairly uh, easy exercise to do to get experience at. Uh, because I think there's a lot of things we don't know about how you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly, again, we're we're biased up here, but Andy's really tried to push the envelope and done some really neat things in the past five years or so. Mm-hmm. To be honest, though, the, the place that I've seen sort of remote mentoring or telementoring um, in, in the world in terms of, you know, visiting and being visiting professors and, and you know, sort of experiences like that has been Australia. Um, that their same thing. Their northern regions are 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 incredibly supported by big cities, um, such as Brisbane and 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 Sydney. I mean, they have cameras and trauma bays. They have mm-hmm. ultrasounds, and they don't obviously have to deal with the um, the long time delays that that you guys do. But um, what they can get done again, and and the quality of care and the quality of teaching and, and the effectiveness at the other end is remarkable. I think that's a skill set that we really haven't uh, developed yet, and we'll probably have a lot of ignorance in is how you tell a mentor somebody um, remotely, even without a time delay. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you talk to things? How how do you talk to them? How they talk to you? Uh, you know, do you have uh, stop points where you kind of try to to reorganize things. So I, I think there's a lot to be learned there that, that um, to me, I see that, that a lot of research needs to be done in the next five or 10 years that will, that will really open up that whole world. Yeah, for sure. My, my sense is that it's, it's coming, it's coming slowly. I mean, one of the interesting anecdotes, at least in Canada is 
um, Andy ran it, and then I ran it, and we handed it off to one of our, our partners, Paul Macbeth, uh, when he came and joined us as a, as a trauma surgeon here in Calgary. And it was the, the national ultrasound, you know, extended fast and beyond uh, course, basically the American College course. And the demand for that course has almost gone to zero now because ultrasound training is so ingrained in so many different types of residencies. So I'm I'm hopeful that what you're describing will happen and that interest will continue to to increase. Um, I, you know, I, I'm just curious as a, as a penultimate question, how does all of this work and this, this, the deep thinking about, um, surgery and surgical care, maybe more, more, uh, more broadly in such remote environments, how, how does it inform your, your daily practice and the way you think with your patients and, or, or does it at all? Uh, I, I think it affects it in, um, in uh, how I pass on information to other team members. Uh, I think a lot of times when you are discussing medical issues, surgical issues, uh, especially trauma care with other team members, you assume that they know A, B, and C, and, and you find out very quickly that that they may not know that, that you may have to to dial back and become even more basic. Um, You have to be very careful about assuming what somebody's knowledge base is or what their skill set is. And um, so you kind of have to be able to figure that out as you go along and and be able to communicate effectively to make sure that that you know what their knowledge base is, you know what their skill set is. And and everybody tries to do the best job they can. and, And a lot of times they try to do things that they're not really capable of or maybe don't have a skill set for, but they don't want to speak up and tell you that. And so you you kind of have to uh, very judiciously uh, monitor them and uh, and make sure that they're not getting out of their league. Um, I think about that a lot when I think about trying to do telementoring from a remote distance. You know, you, you, you can't assume that you... You can't give them capabilities that they may not have. You kind of have to figure out what their capabilities are and and, uh, and factor that into the situation. Dr. Campbell, for any residents or trainees who are interested in getting uh, involved in space medicine or space surgery, what would you recommend uh, in terms of getting involved? Right. Well, that yeah, that, that was the same thing as when I first got involved with this. Um, is that you have to get involved with the professional medical organization, which is the Aerospace Medical Association and the Space Medicine Association. And you have to uh, start trying to uh, develop uh, relationships with people who are in the field and uh, and and uh, try to uh, connect with them uh, as best you can. Of course, the way you do that most of the time is by going through the annual meetings, and and you just need to just become familiar with the literature. There's there's a uh, set of literature out there for space medicine, a set of literature for surgical care in space, and just become familiar with uh, with all of the, that literature and what the issues are, and what issues have been solved, and what issues are are remaining, and uh, uh, that's number one. Now. You have to realize that the research opportunities 
are very thin. There's not much money for research, and it's going to be probably less as time goes on, uh, especially with the uh, U.S. Uh, debt being uh, so high uh, uh, after uh, the coronavirus uh, event. And so I, I think that the federal budget is going to be very, uh, very skimpy, and I think research money is going to be uh, very, very minimal. So there's not a lot of opportunity, and uh, you just kind of have to be as knowledgeable as you can and, and, then, and then try to seek opportunity wherever it is. Uh, it's hard to see uh, anything without the, the word COVID in it getting a lot of uh, play in the next little while. Um, right. Well, we just added $6 trillion to the debt. I don't think they're going to be springing a lot of money for space exploration or space medicine. Yeah. Um, I, I also, while we have you, I, I wanted to ask about your work on prophylactic surgery for astronauts. Where does uh, where do the space agencies really stand in terms of prophylactic uh, surgeries for astronauts uh, going on extended duration missions? Well, you know, I think it's something that everybody likes to talk about and discuss about, and we do, we've been discussing it for twenty or thirty years. My own feeling is, uh, you take a, a a specific surgical disease, let's say appendicitis, the incidence of that disease is actually going to be fairly low. And so by doing a prophylactic procedure, you've eliminated the possibility of having that disease. But it's such such, such low incidence, you really haven't, haven't changed things very much. And, and I still think that, that you ought to try to be capable, surgically capable, of taking care of, of many things as you possibly can, not just one thing but just just a lot of things in general. So you take appendicitis, and if you do an apodectomy prophylactically, you've eliminated that risk, but the, the instance is very, very low, so you really haven't changed things very much. And you still have to have the surgical capability to take care of a whole bunch of things in general. So it really hasn't changed your medical system either. So I, I'm not really been... I've never been in favor of prophylactic procedures, um, I, I just don't think they're going to really uh, change what your medical care system needs to be. Mark, the last question that we wanted to ask you, and, and again, I'll preface it with thank you so much for your time. We know how busy you are, and, uh, and the Canadian audience in particular was really excited to hear from you. My, my question is, you know, you've been at this game for a very long period of time, and you've seen administrations come and go uh, in particular, uh, um, in, in the NASA world, I'm curious what your overall view of the culture of NASA as a as a government-run agency sits in terms of what seems from the outside to be a bit of a freight train with Space One and SpaceX and all the sort of private um, slash you know commercial entities that that are moving along. Where do you see all that settling out with the roles of each side, and and where is it going? Well, it's definitely the Wild West, and uh, a lot of uh, the companies and entities that are around now probably won't be around 10 years from now. Yeah. So it it is very uh, uh, chaotic and, and confusing. Um, NASA itself tends to like to do things in-house, 
and they like to hold their cards close to their chest. And so I think it's important that if anybody is really seriously wanting to do something in space medicine, uh, they they need to get inside. They need to try to become a part of the uh, a part of the NASA space medicine culture. Um, and I don't know exactly what that means if if they need to find a way to get involved in research um, if NASA funded or get involved in medical operations at NASA. Uh, but but they need to get uh, they need to become a part of the NASA culture to be able to uh, uh, get any benefit out of it. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback So feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.